This is Jared O'Brien for the Christians Engaging Culture podcast. Christians Engaging Culture exists to equip the members of St. Thomas's to give a faithful answer in everyday cultural conversations and to turn those conversations to the gospel. For the past few weeks, we've been thinking about the topic of religious liberty. Religious liberty is important because we want to share the gospel with family, friends, and in the public square because we want everyone to be saved. We also seek to influence government and laws so that the vulnerable are protected and our laws are consistent with God's good design for humans flourishing. This week we hear from Greg Kokel from Stand to Reason in the United States. In this lecture titled The Intolerance of Tolerance, he shows how the postmodern worldview turns tolerance on its head. He discusses a common tactic a common tactic used against Christians of calling them names and exposes the contradictions in this way of thinking. Kokel is concerned about the impact of the new tolerance on our culture and how it prevents reasonable, fair, tolerant discussions about the things that really matter. He calls us to resist name-calling and to address the issues, consider the facts, weigh the evidence, and reflect on the reasons. We are thankful for Greg Kokel's ministry called Stand to Reason for allowing us to republish this lecture, and we encourage you to check out their website at str.org. There's another event coming up that we want to recommend. The Australian Christian Lobby is holding their national conference in Sydney on October 19. There's a group of people from St. Thomas's that will be attending. You can purchase a ticket at the ACL website, and then you can let us know you're going by filling in the form on our coming events page of the website, and we can let you know where the group will meet on the day, so you can join with other people from church and going. But for now, here's Greg Kokel. Let me introduce our speaker. Uh, Greg Kokel is, um, he just never stops. He's one of the busiest guys in the evangelical world and certainly one of the busiest guys in the apologetics world. He's the founder and president of Stand, uh, Stand to Reason. I'm on the board, I should know the name of the organization. And by the way, you wanna write this down immediately, str.org, str.org, one of the finest uh, apologetics resource sites uh, on the planet. Uh, Greg holds a Master of Arts degree in Christian Apologetics, in case you're wondering what you can do with such a thing. Uh, take a look at Greg. And he also holds a Master's degree in Philosophy of Religion and Ethics. He's, a, he's an amazing teacher, and he has gone toe-to-toe with some of the finest uh, thinkers and skeptics around the globe. And today he's got a wonderful talk on the concept of or the problematic concept of tolerance in the modern world. Greg Kokel, so glad you're here. Thank you. Boy, I have never heard so many oohs and ahs. I am so glad to be back with my friends here at, at, at Grace Point. I have a tremendous fondness for you. I've been two other times back with you, and um, you're one of my favorite audiences. I, I actually think you are my favorite audience. <laughs> and partly because you have such a great sense of humor. <laughs> and I know that because you laugh at my jokes. <laughs> Even when I'm not trying to be funny. <laughs> Even laughed at Craig Hazen. <laughs> and he's not funny. Well, I'm here uh, this afternoon because my life has been deeply influenced by an ancient teacher. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And 38 years ago, while I was a student at UCLA, I began to give some careful thought to the, th the things that Jesus said, uh, the way he looked at reality, and the claim that he made in my own life. 
And it didn't happen overnight. I actually really thought hard about it for about six months to a year, but I finally came to the conclusion that Jesus got it right. That, that, that he saw the world the way it really was. And if that was the case, I thought the smartest thing that I could do was to step in behind him and become his follower, which I did. And ever since then, I've been doing my best to follow him, and it hasn't always been easy. It's been kind of like Mr. Toad's Wild Ride. But uh, in that time, I've also tried to help other people to follow him as well and to see the way he saw the world and understand the world from his perspective. Now, if you are not a follower of Christ today, I'm not here to convert you. I have a more modest goal. I just want to put a stone in your shoe. I just want to get you thinking. I kind of want to annoy you in a good way so that when you walk out of here, you, you know, you're scratching your head thinking about something that I've said because I'm convinced that, that Christianity is worth thinking about. But in that light, I, I want to spend my time here uh, thinking about a trend that I think has kept people from giving the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth a fair consideration recently. And it's a trend that I don't actually think has been good for our communities. <clears throat> Let me introduce the concern with a, with a question. <clears throat> Why do so many people seem to be angry at Christians? Uh, the discourse, I think, at the public square on religious issues have become increasingly shrill. I think, you know, both sides are at fault and Christians as well. But I actually think that the hostility is particularly intense towards evangelical Christians, uh, though not just them, certainly. But, uh, and, and the reason is, is that they've been viewed increasingly, I think, um, as a dangerous threat to liberty in our country. Now, I actually think this fear is unfounded, and uh, Dennis Prager has made the observation that uh, it's been pretty much been evangelical Christians whose ideas have held sway for the last 200 years, and we've just experienced nothing but uh, uh, liberty and prosperity as a result of it. But I want to suggest that there is something that has happened in the last, say, 20 years that has changed the equation, at least, as how people view this interaction. And I think that if we see this, maybe we'll be better citizens as a result, uh, better public servants, and all around better human beings if uh, we correct a confusion. And here's what I think that is going on. I, th I think that the anger towards Christians has to do with the power of an idea. It's an idea that people are deeply confused about, and the idea is called tolerance. I want to give you some examples just of things that I have run into that kind of highlight this, this, uh, this problem of tolerance. Uh, two years ago, I was out at Mount Royal University, and uh, what you see on the screen here is a poster. Mount Royal University is in Calgary, Canada, and I was doing a debate up there uh, with Dr. John Baker at the University of Calgary, but I also have an had an opportunity to give this talk um, at Mount Royal University across town. The talk was titled, Is it intolerant to say Jesus is the only way. This is a picture of a poster that was created to be circulated around campus. Now, I want you to notice that this particular event was university sanctioned, 
We had a room to do this at. The group that was sponsoring me posted the posters or printed the posters. But when they went to try to distribute this poster, they were not allowed to do so. Now, notice the innocuous statement on the poster. It has the title of the talk. Is it intolerant to say Jesus is the only way? And then has this. Is choosing a religion merely a matter of preference, like chocolate versus vanilla, or is it about something much more serious? Come here, Christian speaker, Greg Kokel, etc. Well, we were prevented from posting this around campus. And when we asked why couldn't we advertise the event that we had permission to have on the campus, we were given two reasons. First reason was that the title was divisive. Now, you can see the title. The title is answering a charge. And it seems to me if it's divisive to answer the charge, is it intolerant to say that Jesus is the only way? Why isn't it divisive to make the charge, which was being done all over the campus? But that thought didn't occur to them. Here's the second reason they said we couldn't post the poster up. The second reason was because it had racial overtones. Now I see you with the quizzical looks on your face and you're looking up trying to read the fine print. And some of you, now it's finally dawning on you what the problem is. We have the words chocolate and vanilla. <laughs> now, I was not aware that in Calgary, Canada, though I think they have chocolate and vanilla ice cream being sold at the local 7-Eleven or something, that there were lines outside of people protesting the racial, racial uh, innuendo that was suggested by that fact, but in any event, oh, there's a postscript to this, by the way. The, um, the group, what was the campus group that was responsible for this censorship of my free speech? The group was the Campus Human Rights Group. Now, before I show you the next photo, I, I, wanna, I want to um, give you a warning. Uh, this is a photo that comes from Jake's Bar in Olympia, Washington. I was speaking at a, a local university there, a community college at that particular time. This was about two years ago. And my wife and I were walking in downtown Olympia, and we happened to see Jake's Bar. And on Jake's Bar was a poster that expressed their point of view related to the issue of tolerance. And I photographed this, and if you look closely in a moment when this slide comes up, you'll actually be able to see my reflection in the window there taking the shot. But the reason I'm warning you in advance is because there's a naughty word in this poster. So I'm going to read the poster to you, and you can read it yourself. But if you have tender eyes, you might turn your eyes away. And I won't say the word. I'll just spell it out. But it is relevant to the point that I'm making. So here is the poster I saw posted outside of Jake's Bar in Olympia, Washington. It says this. Jake's is a hate-free bar. I'm sorry. It's a hate-free queer bar. We welcome everybody, unless you are homophobic transphobic, racist, sexist, heterophobic, thief, drug dealer, violent, bigot, or A-S-S-H-O-L-E. Now, if none of these apply to you, welcome. Have a fabulous time. The staff at Jake's, and you notice the fine print here, the, the staff at Jake's cares about you. And if you feel that someone here is compromising our safe, hate-free space, please don't hesitate to let one of us know. Thanks. Jake's staff. And of course, the implication there is if you are threatening that hate-free spray, they're going to toss you out on your ear because you're not welcome there. And then every once in a while, you'll see something like this. It's a 
<clears throat> I don't know if there's something odd about this headline with these photos. It's in the LA Times, uh, October 13, 2006, and the headline says, gay leaders say protesters are using hateful tactics. And of course, there's two photographs there. And when you look closer in on the photographs, of course, you can see there are those people that are angry and hostile and yelling. See them? Boy, they're awful. Oh, wait a minute. That's the, those are the homosexual leadership that we're screaming. This <laughs> is the hateful protesters. Five <laughs> Russian old women in babushkas <laughs> sitting on a park bench. Now, I, I hope you see the confusion in these examples. The so-called tolerant ones seem to be the ones who are acting in the harsh, bigoted, judgmental, condescending, and oppressive way. And in fact, somebody said with regards to the Jakes thing once, well, those people, I guess they aren't being very tolerant. And I said, they're not being tolerant at all. Because what some people don't realize is tolerance is reserved for people you disagree with. <laughs> I ask sometimes I use tolerant of homosexuality. Somebody says, yeah, I am. Well, then you must think it's wrong or have misgivings about it. No, I don't think. Well, then you don't tolerate it. You only tolerate things that you disagree with. And it turns out all of these folks are very tolerant of all the people that are just like them, but not of people who have genuine differences. Now, why does this unlikely confusion exist, the tolerant ones seeming to exhibit such intolerance? Uh, I think in an odd and completely unpredictable way for me, this confusion and about tolerance in the States has been deeply influenced by the events surrounding September 11, 2001. Sometimes I get asked the question, gee, you know, did, did uh, 911 drive people back to church? And for those of you around during that time, you notice that the churches got filled up. It did drive people back to church, but it didn't drive people back to God. Because when people get nervous or they get scared, they go to a place of comfort like church, but when the fear you know, goes away, is removed, then they go back to their normal life. They didn't return to God. The painted ward off and their fears dissipated. They returned to the way things were, and that's exactly what happened at 9-11. With one curious exception, among the gatekeepers of our society, those who dominate the press and the universities, the entertainment industry, uh, a sentiment, I think, began to change very rapidly regarding two religions. Oddly, our culture became much more sympathetic to Islam and much more hostile to Christianity. And the irony, it seems to me, is that it took a, 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 an attack on our country by Muslim extremists uh, that cost 2,973 lives on American soil, that 10 years later resulted in Islam having almost most favored religious status in our country, and the Christians, especially the evangelicals, looking like the bad guys. And, and I, 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 I think I know one of the reasons why that's the case. Um, Thomas Friedman wrote an article in the New York Times, November 27, 2001. So the smoke was still billowing from the Twin Towers site at the time he wrote this. The article is entitled, The Real War. And what he indicated in the title was that we are fighting a real war, but it's not a war about, to about um, terrorism. Terrorism is just a means to an end. There's a bigger end in view here. 
It's an end that he called religious totalitarianism. That's the dangerous thing. And as you read further in your article, you found out what he understood religious totalitarianism to be, and here I'm quoting, a view of the world that my faith can be affirmed and held passionately only if all others are negated. In other words, a religious totalitarian is somebody who thinks he's right when it comes to religious questions and other people are wrong. And then in the article, Thomas Friedman applauds a rabbi who, quote, set up his own schools in Israel to compete with fundamentalist Jews, Muslims, and Christians who use their schools to preach exclusivist religious visions. So according to Thomas Friedman, who's the real enemy? It's the person who preaches exclusivist religious visions. Now that certainly was true of those who launched the attacks on 9-11, but it's also true of, I'd say, the vast majority of people in this room. And so with one fell swoop, Thomas Friedman lumped all fundamentalists together without making relevant distinctions and beliefs, and he's calling them all dangerous. In fact, he says the future of the world may well be decided by how we fight this war. Notice the bellicose terms he's using to describe this conflict between the exclusivists and the rest of us tolerant folk. Now this is the first time that I had ever heard such kind of language, but I've heard a lot of that since then. If you think of some of the books recently released, uh, books like God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything, Christopher Hitchens, American Fascists, The Christian Right, and The War on America. How about Sam Harris's title, The End of Faith, Religion, Terror, and the Future of Reason? For a while, there were more books that were being published warning of the perils of Christianity than virtually anything else, certainly any other religion. I recently heard Chris Matthews say, the group most like the Taliban is the religious right. Now, please understand, I am not whining, I'm not complaining, I'm not saying, poor us, the sky is falling, anything like that. I'm simply making an observation. Something has changed in the last 10 years. And this is an observation I don't really need to make to many of you because whether you thought much about it, you've experienced it if you've been visible at all about your own convictions about Jesus of Nazareth in the context of this community that you find yourself in. What's going on here? What is the root of this confusion? For simplicity's sake, let me mention two related concepts that I think people have been taken in by. And really the bulk of what the time I want to spend with you now is just to talk about these two concepts. I think people have been taken in by the myth of neutrality and by the myth of tolerance. Now I don't at all mean that true tolerance isn't a virtue. I think what we're experiencing is a distortion and that's what I want to identify. What I'd like to show you in our remaining time together are three things. First, I want to show you that no one's neutral and if tolerance depends on a kind of neutrality then it's clear there's trouble ahead if it turns out nobody's really neutral. Secondly, I want to show you that there is nothing unusual about thinking that one religious view is true and others are false. Indeed, I think reason itself requires this. It's not intolerance, it's just simple math. And finally, uh, I want to show how the current politically correct version of tolerance is actually intolerance in disguise. In other words, it is the intolerance of tolerance. 
So let's talk about each in order. The myth of neutrality. Now I have in my hand a citation, something written by Faye Waddleton, uh, that I want to read to you because it expresses a point of view. Faye Waddleton is the uh, former president of Planned Parenthood. Might you, might, so many of you might consider I don't probably have a lot in common with her on political views, but I'm not reading this to ridicule. Um, I, I, I'm reading it because I think she's done a very lucid job of describing a point of view that I want to take exception with. And uh, I'd rather take exception with a really good characterization of the opposing point of view. In fact, this is so lucid and so, I think, compelling on first read. Many of you are going to think, gee, I I think I'm probably supposed to disagree with her, but I don't know how I can disagree without sounding foolish. But if you're listening carefully, you'll see there's a flaw in her reasoning. Let's see if you catch it. Here's what she writes on morality. Quote, like most parents, I think that a sense of moral responsibility is one of the greatest gifts that I can give my child. But teaching morality doesn't mean imposing my moral values on others. It means sharing wisdom and giving reasons for believing as I do and then trusting others to think and judge for themselves. My parents' morals were deeply rooted in religious conviction but tempered by tolerance the essence of which is respect for other people's views. They taught me that reasonable people may differ on moral issues and that fundamental respect for others is morality of the highest order. I have devoted my career, she writes, to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. I hope the tolerance and respect I show her as a parent is reinforced by the work she sees me doing every day, fighting for the right of all individuals to make their own moral decisions about childbearing. Of course, she's referring to abortion on demand there. 75 years ago, Margaret Sanger founded Planned Parenthood to liberate individuals from the mighty engines of repression. As she wrote, the men and women of America are demanding that they be allowed to mold their lives not at the arbitrary command of church or state, but as their conscience and judgment may dictate. And then she closes. I'm proud to continue that struggle to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs. When others try to inflict their views on me, my daughter, or anybody else, that's not morality. It's tyranny. It's unfair. And it's un-American. Close quote. Wow. That's good writing. That's powerful stuff. It sounds so sensible. It sounds so reasonable. It sounds so tolerant. But there's a fundamental flaw here. Notice first your implicit emphasis on neutrality, because that's what I'm talking about here. I'm not arguing the abortion pro-choice debate. It's not my interest. I want you to look at something else. She says we should trust others to think and judge for themselves, that Americans are demanding that they be allowed to mold their lives as their conscience and judgment may dictate. So Waddleton is promoting a kind of a moral neutrality and non-interference. Fair enough? In other words, we should be morally neutral, tolerant towards others, and if we're not neutral, we're not tolerant. So, what's the flaw? You can, give, you can give it to me in one sentence, and if you're really clever, you can give it to me in three words. The flaw is, she's what? Not neutral. She's not neutral. How do I know that? I read the piece. Faye Waddleton says she wants to continue to the struggle to defend the rights of all people to their own beliefs, but then she has this to say of those whose beliefs on morality 
are different from hers. They are unfair, they are un-American, and they're tyrannous. By the way, do you see that she means them all to be moral judgments on people who disagree with her here? Does Faye Waddleton save the, show the same neutral respect for a person following her conscience to block an abortion clinic? No, she thinks they're what? They're wrong. Now, she may have her reasons for objecting, and maybe good ones, but my point is she's not neutral. But it's worse than that because Faye Waddleton is very happy to impose her own moral views on you. Notice the sentence. I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my daughter Felicia can inherit that legacy. Now what does she do with her career? She's a lobbyist. She goes to Capitol Hill and she tries to invade upon politicians and lawmakers to pass laws that reflect her own point of view. Now she might as well have said, I have devoted my career to ensuring a world in which my point of view is enforced. And just to put a sharper point on it, a few years later, when Pamela Moraldo followed Faye Waddleton as president of Planned Parenthood, um, Congress passed a law that made it a federal offense to block an abortion clinic. And when Pamela Moraldo was interviewed on this issue, here's what she said about that. Now listen carefully. She said, this law, this is an exact quote, I heard it myself, this law goes to show that no one can force their viewpoint on someone else. <laughs> now you laugh because, golly gee, all views force, all laws force a viewpoint. That's the point of the law, right? And for legislators who don't think they should be legislating morality, I think they should get out of the legislation business then. Because that's the point of morality and law. By the way, I, I, I don't object to her trying to mandate her point of view politically. I mean, this is our system. We all get a vote. We all get a say-so. You know, this is fine. This is the way the game works, if you will. I'm just making a simpler point. She's not neutral. And the appeal to uh, neutrality is very attractive, even sounds persuasive, but that neutrality is a myth. Anybody who weighs in on any issue has surrendered their neutrality. It doesn't mean that they're wrong. It doesn't mean that they shouldn't weigh in. It just means, let's face it, they're not neutral. And if tolerance trades on neutrality, then that kind of tolerance is in trouble. You know, something similar to this came up when um, the Southern Baptists about eight years ago decided to go to Chicago and to, to do their, uh, their, their summer uh, evangelism there with Jews. So the, the, the SBC, Southern Baptist Convention, kind of have these summer things that they do emphasis and they were asking uh, their constituency to pray about this so they would have a successful enterprise as they went to try to converse with people. Well, this created a tremendous uproar. Um, in fact, uh, people from all over the country weighed in on this because, uh, and indeed a consortium of religious groups in Chicago, which included Christian denominations, told the Southern Baptists, don't come to Chicago. Why not? Well, they warned that the Baptists' evangelism in their city would encourage hate crimes. That was the rationale. And a Jewish group actually claimed it invited theological hatred. Now notice what they're doing. They're planning to come to Chicago and tell people about Jesus. That's it. Theological hatred. It was such a big deal that Larry King, 
had devoted a significant portion of his show just to this issue and had a Jewish rabbi from Chicago and one from New York and two members of the SBC to come and talk about it. Now, this was not a pretty picture because the people who were angry were really angry, in particular the Jewish rabbis here. And on, on the one hand, you can understand their ire. I, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. But what, what was curious was the complaint because what the Jewish rabbi said was, we already have a religion. If you want to peddle your religion, take it somewhere else to people who don't already have a religion. When you try to go to people who have a religious view and try to change that religious view, then you are doing something hateful, spiteful, intolerant, and dangerous. Right? Fair enough. Now I want to ask you a question. What did the appeal from the Jewish rabbis amount to? The Jewish rabbis were expressing their religious view on evangelism. That is, according to our religious community, we do not evangelize people who already have a religion. We leave them alone. That's our religious conviction. You Christians, listen carefully, ought to have the same view of evangelism in your religious community that we have in our religious community. What were the rabbis actually asking the, the Christians to do? To change their religious review to comport with the Jewish religious view. They were doing the same things that they were accusing the Christians of doing to them and virtually nobody saw it. It certainly didn't come up in the conversation. The irony is the Christians were there calmly defending their faith and they were branded intolerant and hate mongers and the rabbis were, and I'm just speaking descriptively here, viciously condemning the Christians but they were the ones that were characterized as tolerant and open-minded. So even in this religious issue, there's no neutrality. This kind of neutrality is a myth. And if it is a myth, then it ought to raise questions about the legitimacy of the tolerant view that all religions are equally right. And that's where I want to go to now. So here's where we've come so far. I introduced my, my comments here with a couple of suggestions and some examples of crazy things that are happening in our culture. Actually, I left a bunch out for the sake of time. And th th these expressed a, a particular hostility towards evangelical Christians. And then I asked what was going on here. And I said, I think there's an idea in play. There's confusion about the issue of tolerance. And I said at the heart of it, I think, is one, the idea that people think that if you're neutral, then you're tolerant. But I said, really, nobody in the game is neutral. Everybody's got a point of view here. Um, I also then said I wanted to argue that there really is nothing spiteful, hateful, or intolerant about saying your religious view is correct. And that's where I want to go right now. About eight or ten years ago, I was flown out to um, Toronto, Canada to do a national TV show on the cable network there. Uh, called Test of Faith, and this is the kind of show where uh, they, they fly out some religious weirdo and they put him in the hot seat, you know, and then they have a semicircle table where other people come up, three or four people, and then they beat him up for an hour on national TV. 
Kind of fun. Where do you think Mr. Kolka was sitting, by the way? <laughs> I was the weirdo in the hot seat. Now, what was my weird religious viewpoint? My view was that I rejected pluralism. Now, th the particular form of pluralism we are talking about is religious pluralism that says that all religions are equally valid ways to God. Doesn't matter what religion that you believe in, that's just as good as any other religion. And obviously, if I'm coming up saying what Jesus said, and I'm trying to be faithful to the message that He entrusted to other Christians, that He, in fact, is the antidote for the world's troubles, because He is the one who paid the penalty that secures the pardon for the rest of us, and without that pardon, there, there is no pardon. <laughs> We stand alone before God to give an account for our own lives and be judged for our own crimes against God such as they are. So, I mean, there's a reason why Jesus claimed this, because He's the only one who solved the problem. And so if you're faithful to Christ, you give the same message that Jesus gives, but when you do it in this climate, then you've got to essentially say, I think pluralism is just false on the merits. And so this particular discussion was to, to get at Mr. Kokel who was the non-pluralist and show what a bad guy he was. In fact, <clears throat> before the show started, I was having a conversation with somebody on the crew. Uh, he was an atheist, actually, and he had, we had had some phone conversation to set up this event, so I was familiar with him. And <clears throat> I said, let me, let me make a little gentleman's wager with you about how this show is going to go. I'm going to step up, and I'm going to calmly give an argument against pluralism. My argument against pluralism will be ignored, and instead, the people on the panel will start attacking me personally, all right? And they're going to call me things like arrogant and narrow-minded and especially intolerant. So I don't know, maybe it won't work out that way, but I've been in situations like this before, so let's just see how it goes. So the first segment, I'm up with uh, Valerie Pringle, who is the, uh, the host of the show, and I'm by myself. Um, and she said, you got five minutes to make your case, and then we break for commercial, and then we'll start bringing some other people on. A Sikh, uh, a Hindu pastor, and then a liberal, uh, I should say, a, a female pastor of a liberal Christian denomination there, the United Church of Canada, all who were pluralists and who disagreed with me on this particular point. So I told Valerie that I was going to give an argument against pluralism that did not trade on my own religious convictions. That is, I could have gotten up and said, I'm a Christian, Christians are right, everybody else is wrong. I mean, that's not persuasive to a lot of people, but, but, but it's a way of arguing, all right? Sometimes we find ourselves in that kind of mode. I said, I'm not going to do that, because if I do that, then Christianity will become the target here. This is what I'm thinking strategically in my mind. And I don't want Christianity to be the target. I want pluralism to be the target. That's what the show is about. So I told Valerie Pringle, I'm going to make an argument that anybody can make regardless of what they believe. I'm going to make an argument that any, even an atheist could make if he was at least open to the possibility that some religion might be true. He would be within his rights to say they can't all be true. So here it is. I said, Jesus claimed to be, be the Messiah. Well, he either was the Messiah or he wasn't, right? Well, if he wasn't the Messiah... Well, the Jews are right, and the Christians are wrong. If he was the Messiah, the Christians are right, and the Jews are wrong, but under no circumstance can they both be right. Do you see that? 
Uh, if God exists, maybe it's an open question, but if he does, he's either personal or he's not personal. Now, if he's personal, the Jews and the Muslims and Christians are right on that point, and the, the Hindus are wrong. If it turns out that he is non-personal, then the Hindus are right and the Jews, Muslims, Christians are wrong, but under no circumstance can they be both right. When you die, uh, maybe you go to heaven or hell, uh, maybe you get reincarnated, maybe you go to astral worlds, maybe you lie in the grave, but you can't do them all at the same time. <laughs> Somebody must be mistaken. And notice, by the way, I'm not talking about the kind of issues of like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. I'm talking about the central issues that, that, uh, that these religions concern themselves with. Okay, so there's my case. By the way, I think that's a good argument. In fact, I told uh, Valerie Pringle, I said, you know, there's, there's, there's actually two ways to oppose my argument, two theoretical ways. I don't think anybody on the panel is going to take those ways, and both of them have their own problems. But uh, anyway, I just tossed it out. We'll see what happens in the rest of the show. We break for commercial, and the first person up is the Sikh. He's uh, T. Sher Singh, um, a barrister from Toronto, a very outspoken uh, attorney, a really nice guy in the green room. <laughs> but then when he comes on the camera, well, actually, he started out kind of passive, but as you'll see, it was kind of passive-aggressive. Because here was his first comment when he was asked, what do you think of Mr. Kokel's point of view, he said, well, if Mr. Kokel thinks he won the lottery, good for him. It was his first comment. Now, what is he talking about, Mr. Kokel winning the lottery? Where did that come from? <laughs> well, of course, I know exactly where it's coming from, and so do you probably. He knows that I'm a Christian, and he did some homework, and he went to our website, and he downloaded some articles that I'd written. He knows where I'm coming from, and that was the first thing that he went at. Not my argument against religious pluralism, he was going after my Christian convictions that Jesus was the true way, and boy, did he have a heyday. In fact, he, he started out passive-aggressive, but he, the passive thing dropped really quickly. <laughs> and he's taking, he's, he's shaking papers across the desk at me, and, oh, you don't know anything about rationality, you don't know anything about reason, You're, you know, guys, guys like you are the kinds of people who cause wars. And that's kind of how the way he put it, you know? Like, he seemed the bellicose one to me, not me. And, 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 and in fact, Valerie Pringle had to push him down three different times in his chair. He was so angry at me. Now, when the Hindu pastor came up, um, he was a nicer person, but he had the same complaints. And certainly the same thing was true of the United Church of Canada pastor. And so now I've got three of them in my face. And before long, certain words start creeping into the conversation. Words like arrogant, words like narrow-minded, words like intolerant. Now, were they addressing my argument? No, they were fulfilling my prophecy. <laughs> and actually, at one point of the conversation, I said, you know, it's kind of curious where this conversation has come so far. Um, we started out talking about an issue called pluralism, gave an argument about that. But somehow the conversation has been gotten off track and now the conversation is all about something else. The conversation is about Mr. Kokel's personality, <laughs> right? Mr. Kokel's intolerant, Mr. Kokel's arrogant, Mr. Kokel's narrow-minded. I guess you're saying that I'm mean. Well, all right, 
Why don't I just agree to that? Why don't I agree with you that I'm really mean? And then we'll just settle that issue, and we can set it aside, and we can get back to what we're supposed to be talking about here. And I did make another observation. I said, you guys are really angry. You're, you're, you're uh, you know. And I understand. You think I'm wrong. All right. Well, wait a minute. If I'm a Christian, and you're upset because of my Christian views, and you think I'm wrong, then that means my Christianity is wrong. And if my Christianity is wrong, then that means Christianity is false. And if Christianity is false, then it's not a legitimate way to God. And if it's not a legitimate way to God, then pluralism is false, isn't it? (laughs) In other words, if you're right about your attack on me, you're wrong about what we're supposed to be talking about here today. (laughs) They didn't get it. I promise you, one whole hour, they didn't get it. Now, the atheist got it. And he bounded up on stage after we were all done, and he was hopping mad at the seek, and he was using language appropriate for an atheist, you know. <laughs> I was calmly arguing that every belief couldn't be true, yet I was the one branded intolerant. The Sikh and the Hindu and the liberal Christian were condemning not just me, but my Christianity and my belief system, yet they were the tolerant open-minded and accepting people. And this happens all the time. Now, I want to give you a little tool here. I just, some of you are writing madly, trying to get all the dialogue down. Let me give you the, the heart of a technique or a tactic that will help you when somebody calls you intolerant. But in order for it to help you, you have to understand what's going on behind the scenes with this challenge. And I've given you a hint of this. Let me just be more precise now. What was going on is what I call the passive-aggressive tolerance trick. Because it is a trick when people call you intolerant most of the time for the reasons that they do that. And they don't know it's a trick. They have been socialized to do this. They know that the right way to respond to this kind of issue is to call you a name. And then they think they've really done their job but they haven't, they've made a big mistake, and so you're gonna help them see the mistake. So here's the thing, whenever anybody calls you intolerant, the thing that you need to do, you need to ask a question. And uh, I think when I was here once before, we did some training on the tactics material, and um, dear Craig Hazen had my tactics book up here to tell you about it, and then never mentioned it when he did my introduction. So I've written a book called Tactics, and you can get it for $10 over there, and that's cheaper than what we sell it for at Stand to Reason, so you better grab it. And you also get free shipping, you know, like you said, so <laughs> that was the deal. But uh, there's a tactic there I call the Columbo tactic, which is asking questions. And um, so you ask this question whenever anybody gives you, uh, calls you intolerant. You always ask, what do you mean by that? Now, I know what they mean by that. I want them to say it and get it out in play. And generally, the response you're going to get is something like they gave me that day uh, in, in Toronto. You think you're right. You think you're right and everybody else is wrong. To which I respond, well, let me ask you a question. Do you think that I think I'm right in what I believe? What do you think? Of course I do. That's why I believe what I believe. Listen, if I didn't believe that what I believed was right, I wouldn't believe what I would believe. (laughs) I'd believe something else and think that was right. Just like everyone in this room. A a belief is a mental activity in which you hold something to be so. 
every person holds a belief, who holds a belief? Holds the belief because he thinks the belief is true. Now he may not know it's true, but he thinks it is. And so I'm not the only person in the conversation that thinks he's right. Guess who else thinks he's right? The guy who's calling me intolerant. So that's my second question. I asked him, what do you mean by that? He said, well, you think you're right. Well, I'm curious. I do think I'm right. Maybe I'm wrong. I'd be glad to talk about it. Let me ask you a question. Do you think you're right? Now, sometimes they'll do like a postmodern two-step, and they'll say, well, you know, I'm right for me. You know that kind of thing? You've heard that? <laughs> Which is, you know, it's an okay response, but it's an odd response in this circumstance. Because, gosh, it kind of seems to me like you're not just right for you, because if you were just right for you, why are you talking to me right now? <laughs> He's talking to me because he thinks I'm what? Wrong, and I should be more like him and what he believes. He's trying to correct me. So then I ask the final question. Why is it when I think I'm right, I'm intolerant? But when you think you're right, you're just right. Well, what am I missing here, you know? Now, of course, I'm not missing anything, and I'm not trying to get points here. I'm not trying to get a notch in my spiritual belt or something. I'm not trying to do a gotcha. I'm trying to get this person to realize that what he is doing is just nonsense. What if I turn to that person after he says you're intolerant, and I say, oh, and you're ugly. (laughs) And your mom dresses you funny, you know, or something like that. Well, I wouldn't do that because that would be unkind and inappropriate. But the question is, what is the difference between our two remarks? He attacks my character. I attack his looks. Are either of us at that point talking about anything meaningful? No, we're not talking about the thing. Jesus or religion or God or whatever. Now we're just firing barbs back at each other. Notice how the intolerance challenge changes the subject. It is just trash talk. Maybe I am intolerant. What does that have to do uh, about whether Jesus is the person who he claimed to be? It has nothing to do with it. I mean, logicians have fancy names for this, like genetic fallacy and ad hominem, but you can see it right away once I point it out. And hopefully now you'll never miss it when it happens. This is the standard way in our culture now of dealing with ideas people don't like. It's to call names. And this is why I said early on, this is a, this is a, a habit, a, a trend that is not good for our communities because it does not get us to the issues that are so grave that they have to be discussed in intelligent terms and name calling is not an adequate substitute for that, but it's passed for it. That's how you disarm the passive aggressive tolerance trick. Now let me tell you, as I, and this will be my final illustration, let me tell you why this kind of thing happens. I think that people have become very confused about actually what tolerance is. I was in Des Moines, Iowa a number of years ago now, and I it was speaking at Ames, Iowa, up at the university there, but I, I did something on the weekend in Des Moines. I had a free day, and there was a local Christian school that got word that I was in town, and so they said, can you come over and talk with our seniors in high school, you know, in our religious class. And I said, religion class, and I said, yeah, I'd be glad to, although I lied, because I don't like talking to high school kids, you know. <laughs> it, to me, it's like talking to a painting. <laughs> and, hey, 
You know, I'm sorry, you know, if you're in high school here, maybe you're an exception, but, you know, I could be talking to high school kids, and I, I tell a joke, man, that the adults would be falling in the aisle or something, and the kids are sitting there like this. <laughs> are you going to laugh? No. Are you going to? We're not going to laugh. So these kids file in the room, you know, and, they, and there's a big long table. There's only about 12 or 13 of them, and they all file in behind the table. And I'm looking at them. It looks like the Last Supper, you know. They're all looking at them. <laughs> and so I want to talk to them about this issue of tolerance. I figure this is probably a good issue to talk about. Let's see what they know, see if they've been taken in by the, the tolerance uh, trick. And so I, I began my little lesson by writing two sentences on the board. Here's the first one. The first one was a definition of tolerance. And that definition is, basically, all views are equally valid, okay? No view is better than another view. This is especially true in the area of morality and in the area of religion. You know, and as I write this on the board, all the kids are kind of nodding and they're smiling and they're saying, yeah, okay, we get it, yeah. Nothing controversial here. And then I wrote another sentence on the board. Jesus is the Messiah, and Jews who reject him are wrong. Wow, them's fighting words, aren't they? And in fact, this, the, the painting came alive, you know. <laughs> People are waving their hands in the air, and this young lady, you know, raised her hand, and she just blurted out. She said, you can't say that. That's, what was the word she used? Intolerant. And then she added, how would you like it if somebody said you were wrong? <laughs> right? You see how easy this creeps into people's thinking? How, I, I said, you mean like you're doing to me right now, young lady? See, some of the undergraduates didn't get it here, so I got to spell this out for you. <laughs> you mean like you're doing to me right now? Doesn't bother me a bit. Why should it? Now, I just want to make an observation about this whole thing, about the tolerance thing. Because of the way tolerance is operating in our culture, we are teaching our young people to feel like they have a right to be angry if somebody disagrees with them. How would you like it if somebody said you were wrong? <laughs> Doesn't bother me a bit. I'm a grown-up. <laughs> so I turned around to the board and I put a circle, like you can barely see in red there, around the first statement, all views are equally valid, and I ask this question, is that a view? Is it a view that all views are equally valid? Yeah, okay. Then I put a circle around the second statement, Jesus is Messiah and Jews are wrong for rejecting him, and I asked the same question. I said, is that a view? This guy's really hard, man. <laughs> Finally, they admitted, yeah, that's a view. I said, you know, well, this is really odd, isn't it? Because tolerance, I'm characterizing this as postmodern tolerance now, is the view that all views are equally valid, and that Jesus is the Messiah, Jews who reject him are wrong, is a view. Gosh, that means we have to say what about the second sentence if we are going to be tolerant that it is just as what? As valid as any other view. 
So all views are equally valid, including the view, I told the students, that all views are not equally valid. In other words, all views are equally valid and not equally valid at the same time. <laughs> Is this causing any discomfort for anybody here? I mean, those high school kids were just dying on the vine at this point, man. They were out of it. I said, this is a contradiction. But this is what you must run into if you operate based on the popular, what I'm calling the postmodern view of tolerance. I said, you want to know how to escape this trap? You've got to change, you want to change your definition of tolerance. This isn't the right definition. And so I cleared the board and began to write on the board what classical tolerance was. And I, I get this characterization from Peter Kraft of Boston College. I think it's really nice and handy. And I wrote this sentence. First, be egalitarian towards persons. Be egalitarian towards persons. I said to the kids, you know what egalitarian means? They said, no. It means to like treat people equally, all right? Equal value. Be kind to them. Then I wrote a second sentence, Kreft's sentence, be elitist towards ideas. Be elitist towards ideas. Now, the students understood what an elitist was. That's a snob. Yeah, that's right. You should be kind of snobby about ideas. In other words, you think that some ideas are better than others, right? Now, why would anybody be tempted to think that some ideas are better than others, because they are. <laughs> some are good, some are bad, some are wise, some are foolish, some are stupid, some are dangerous. And it just seems to me that we ought to have the freedom in our culture to discuss which is which. This is what the virtue is. The word tolerance gets its virtuous sense from the classical sense that we are to be gracious towards individuals even if we disagree with them. Even when we think they're wrong, we give them a place in the discussion, we don't treat them in inhumane ways, and we don't call them names just because they don't have our view. That's classical tolerance. I want you to see one more thing here that is very, very important. The postmodern view turns classical tolerance on its head. And watch these words move here. Notice that what postmodern tolerance says is that you have to be egalitarian towards ideas, and if you do not step in tune with that point of view, people feel free to mistreat you publicly so that they are elitists with regards to persons. And who is the elite on this assessment? It's the people who are politically correct on these things. Now again, I, I'm not trying to have like, a, like a, a, a public battle about ideas broadly here. Whether you're on the left or the right is irrelevant to me, to this point, to this issue. I'm just simply saying that what has passed for tolerance of late is not tolerance at all. It's exactly the opposite of tolerance. And what it has done is it's gotten in the way of us having reasonable, fair, tolerant discussions about the things that really matter.
So here's my closing appeal. Regardless of what your personal convictions are, left, right, center, whatever, don't be taken in by the tolerance trick. Don't give in to the tendency to dismiss a view with politically correct name-calling like you're intolerant. That is thoughtless. It's unkind. It's not a virtue. And it doesn't help us get where we need to go as we work through these issues. Rather, address the issues, consider the facts, weigh the evidence, reflect on the reasons, think carefully, because too much is at stake for this kind of foolishness. And always remember that in the final analysis, when all the facts are in, when all the smoke is cleared and the truth is fully evident, the person who was simply dismissed as intolerant may turn out to be the one whose views were correct in the end. Thank you. Biola University offers a variety of biblically-centered degree programs, ranging from business to ministry to the arts and sciences. Visit biola.edu to find out how Biola could make a difference in your life. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Christians Engaging Culture. Make sure you discuss this material after church and discipleship groups so we can sharpen one another as a church community. Remember that we have the ACL National Conference coming up on the 19th of October. If you buy a ticket, let us know you're going on the coming events page of our website. For more resources we've handpicked on religious liberty and evangelism, check out the website at cec.stthomas.org.au. That's cec.st-thomas.org.au. Until next week, remember the words of Charles Spurgeon. If Christ be anything, he must be everything.